Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This year marks the 50th birthday of your favorite Sunday World newspaper. To celebrate, we're looking back over some of the front-page stories and the scandals with the big-name journalists who made it the People's Paper. So join us to reel in the years over the coming weeks on Crime World. Sunday World is 50, a Crime World special. Do you remember when um, you won one of your many awards and I tweeted that you were a writer, a drinker and a thinker and you said you're going to put it on your grave? It's it's going down there. There's no question about it. It's I hope you have it etched, have you? <laughs> I have it tattooed. At yeah. <laughs> Won't ask where. <laughs> So anyway, we're going to talk about sport and the Sunday World. So you're going to have to lead as you you know me. Now, I've been to Croke Park and wasn't I in the Hill 16 once drinking? Probably with you. <laughs> My God, on that stage, you're starting to sound like a modern day Jimmy McGee. So you're. <laughs> I've been to Briotis. I've been to all the famous pubs. Most people aspire to Augusta for the Masters, but you've made Briotis and Marlborough Streets. So. I was even with you when Honeysuckle won. My God, you're in Cassidy's. And did you back it that day? Didn't I back something else that was a real sort of outsider that won me, you know, maybe 50 quid or something? Profit just follows you everywhere, Nicola. Yeah, doesn't it? It's just the way I am. Anyway, so we're going to talk about sport in the Sunday world, covering sport. Of course, anybody who likes sport envies you because they always say you're the sort of the fans in the best seats with what was once a typewriter on your knee. Yeah, it it is funny because as a kid, the reason I set my sights on journalism and sports journalism specifically was just I played every sport. I loved every sport. I was a real um, nerd with the stats from everything. And it evolved from that. And simultaneously, I used to read a lot. My mother was a great, a great reader, and there were books all around the place. And I just had this love of words. And um, I think there's a music to words put together into a proper sentence that I could I could listen to it every day. And I love that notion of taking the pieces and like a jigsaw puzzle, trying to put them together to form a sentence or a paragraph or an article that will form a proper colour perception of what's going on for people. So that's that's how it started. And I had all through my fifth, sixth year, I was certain this is what I wanted to do because I wanted that best seat in the house, I suppose. Was that it? Yeah, yeah. I And the love of writing, of course. Yeah, it was funny because I studied like a lunatic, even though in terms of journalism, there wasn't that. 
great a number of points required. It was more interview and stuff with the course. And I ended up having points to do pretty much anything I wanted. Um, but there was never a doubt in my mind, this is what I wanted to do. Um, and a couple of things from those early days stand out. The um, My family were very involved in basketball, which was quite big in Ireland at that stage. And the Sunday World, ironically, had started a basketball column, but I read it and it was plain to see. It was sort of press release stuff. Right. So at 18, I just chanced my arm. Stuff I wouldn't have the courage to remotely do now. Just walked up into the office, this clueless fool, and walked into the sports department and Peter O'Neill was there and I said, I see you do basketball. Can I do the column for you? Yeah. And uh, and Peter was lovely. And I think one of his few concerns was, ask me, was I a member of the NUJ? And it was funny because the... Um, the journalism course, you got temporary membership. So I was able to tell him that. And Did you do at Mines? Yeah. Yeah. She was yeah. the only one in the country at the time. It was, it? yeah, very much so. And it it, it opened just doors. Me back there because we did, of course, get the NUJ cards. And oh my God, we were everywhere around. <laughs> everywhere. I think I was, at, I, I was at every press gig going. We were professional liggers. It was Absolutely. incredible. I forgot about that. Yeah. But that was just such a treasured item. It was worth getting on the course for that. Oh, in, entirely. It, yeah. it unlocked every door to every yeah. place. And another part of the course, and my favorite part of the court was the summer placement yeah. um, where people were going off on J1s. We got placements to newspapers. And I'd grown up in a in a house where the evening press was there all the time. And Con Houlihan, this great Kerry Bard, was a hero of mine. So I applied with the course to go into the Irish press. And I remember going in in the summer of 1987 and just walking into this wonderland. Mm -hmm. And it was the old, the printing presses were rolling on the morning I went in and there was a, the building was shaking. And you walked into this huge open plan newsroom and it was the Lou Grant image of, of newspapers. Yeah. There was stuff going on and the pace of it. And I was utterly, utterly intoxicated within five seconds. I just fell in love with the place. And a couple of really good people to us, a couple of senior journalists there brought us out on the Friday to Mulligan's. and. As you would know, I'd have a fair affection for pubs and old pubs. They're a passion in my life. And walking into this grimy cigarette-stained paradise, yeah. I just thought, this is the it's only like the thing in the world. the first time you laid eyes on Con Houlihan in there? Yeah, yeah. in the newsroom. I, 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 I would have seen him walking the streets a bit because Con had a sort of daily routine where he worked pre-dawn, finished yeah. his work, then went to early houses and then made his way back uh, to Portobello as the day unfolded at his own gentle pace. And I would have run into him a couple of times. But yeah, that was a that was a huge thrill. And he would subsequently take me under his wing. He was extraordinarily kind to me. Um, I remember he heard I was going to be 21. And I got a call from Con in a heavy, heavy Kerry accent. He told me I was to be in the White Horse at nine o'clock the next morning. And I cycled in and I met him in the White Horse. And then we went round to Mulligan's and I wouldn't have been much of a drinker then, but I had to keep pace with the great man that day. He was drinking uh, his brandy and milks and I think I was drinking pints of Guinness. That's what he drank all day long, brandy and milk. Brandy and milk largely. He he gave up on, on um, beer, I think, after the World Cup in Mexico in 1986. He said... Irish beers weren't being properly made or 
some argument of that type. So I had that day with him and I got on the bike to go home and I cycled into a lamppost. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been conned, literally a con job. But I got home, I was living at home at the time. And I think my mother had arranged the 21st party for two days later. And I knocked at the door and she looked at her pride and joy, this son who was making his way in journalism, staggering at about two o'clock in the afternoon into the house. So, um, so yeah, I think... You only made it to two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, but we started at nine in the morning. Yeah, (laughs) and and at at Con's pace, Con Con was a big, uh, heavy man, but in terms of his uh, his swallow, he had Usain Bolt's capacity to cover the ground. Do you know, I remember being in the press, so I can't remember, like it was, you know... Um, I think I might have either been either on work experience or I had just finished college. So it's probably the work experience bit. But I remember seeing this man and he was asleep on a desk, yeah, right? And there was yeah. just this mop of hair kind of thing. I have thought he was dead yeah. and didn't want to say anything. And Nyla Flynn was on the desk and he said, you know, don't worry, he'll wake up now in a minute. And sure enough, he woke up and... Pfft. So yeah, he was, he was, he was this unruly Kerry giant. He... Like his quality of work was astonishing, but Khan. Do you mean that unique. from the writing point of view, and that he had this turn of phrase, and he was able yeah, to he was, drink up the sort of the celebration of sport? Exactly. I mean, when I when I view sport, a lot of people in sport are more concerned, say, about the tactics and the formations. That stuff genuinely doesn't interest me. It probably should. I'm more interested in sports capacity to move people, to bring them together. You see it in today's environment where. The world has become an awful lot more fractured. People don't do stuff together. They don't sit for their evening meals. They stream television, so it's not sitting down in the evening. The one thing that still brings people together and that deeply matters to them are big sporting events, Mm. be it in All-Ireland, be it a rugby international, be it Cheltenham. The communal celebrations of being, which we don't have much these days. And Khan tapped into that. He He was the poet of the ordinary man. He was... He had a capacity to paint word pictures that just moved you. He might write a 1,500, 2,000-word piece on the back of the press on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it might not mention the event he was at until the 900 word. It was about the ducks he'd see in the canal on the way, the people he met in the pubs. It was a postcard from a journey through a day, and I just found that entrancing. Um, That has always been the thing with me, that that capacity of anything, whether it's sport or or the column that I now do, just how it affects people. And I think you see the kindness of people, you see the passionate of people, you see genuine love, you see something that matters in a bone deep way that connects people. Um, I told the story before, my father was strong, silent type of his era who worked hard, provided for you, but wouldn't have been strong on shows of emotion. And Dublin Gaelic football had had a renaissance in the in the early 70s. I was born in 68, so 74 they were. Um, I was five, a bit too young to go, I think, at that time. But 76, Dublin famously played Kerry in a match. And the morning of the match, Dad told me I was going. And we walked down into Drumcondra amidst all those red brick buildings. I always recall, he bought me a Mars bar and these crepe hats that you wore at the time that disintegrated in the rain, but it was a, it was a decent day. And he took my hand and we were walking down to jo- enlist in Heffo's army, Kevin Heffern and the manager. And that was my dad's way of telling me he loved me. Mm. You know? And mm. 
that was how he could do it. He wouldn't have had the words to say that in a million years. But just walking down there, I was six and a half, and it was it was just a beautiful it feeling. Was the joy being brought that you were part of it, that you were allowed to go with him and hold his hand. And so many fathers have done that. Yeah, you become children. a part of something yeah. bigger than yourself. I see now for mothers too. There's 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 a gang of us, Nicola. You'd you'd know many of them. Neil Leslie um, amongst them that we go to Dublin matches together and people bringing kids and the next generation. And it's a rite of passage and it it is a way for families to share something in a social media age where so much is mm. kids locked in a room on their own. And you can see kids coming out of themselves and becoming part of the bigger picture. And as they get a little older, they come in as the kids sort of sipping the Ribena in the mm. corner Seven or eight years later, they're in there with their mates having a pint themselves mm-hmm. and it sort of moves on. But yeah. there's something there's something really lovely about it. And talking about Con Houlihan, he that was the stuff he focused on rather than the actual game. He saw the culture, the sociability, the art in sport, that capacity to take people out of a rut and, you know, move them. And Jimmy Breslin was obviously very similar, sort of a journalist, um, of course, at the New York Post, but he did that too. He was able to go at his subject matter in a way that he spoke about the environment around it and created this sort of image for you. And, you know, before you realised that you were right sucked into this picture and all of a sudden there was this guy beside you and it was some mafia don or something. Yeah, I mean, Breslin captured that golden age of New York sports writing just magnificently and his diaries were absolutely compelling that to me is the the beauty of journalism some people their strength is breaking stories going undercover doing the courageous type of stuff that people like you um do so brilliantly i would never claim that that was my strength or that that was my passion what i think i can do well is that i empathize with people and would have the emotional intelligence to relate to something and how much it matters to people. You don't have to be affiliated with a team. Um, I've seen Clare win in All-Ireland in 95 and I was roaring crying at the end because you could see the passion it engendered in people that it took people to a place that they very rarely got in their life. Mm. Um, I always remember there's this line about Charles Lindbergh when he crossed the uh, Atlantic, the first solo flight, and there was a piece written in the um, the New York Daily News about how it took the city out of slumps and slouches. And that's what these big sporting events do. If you say how animated people are, it suspends reality for those hour or two or for the five or six hours because the, the game itself is only the epicenter of a day where people socialize. Mm. And I think people who obsess about the tactical size of sport sometimes miss out on that. That for many people, big sporting events are social events, they're cultural events, they're family events. The game is the excuse for them to come together. Mm. But it's the stuff that happens around that, that 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 really takes people to a special place. And you forget about the housing crisis, you forget about inflation, you forget about your worries about work. Those worries will still be there tomorrow, but they're parked briefly. It's... It's an anesthetic from daily life that that numbs numbs pains. You're making it sound like a drug almost. You know but it is mean? a drug. It is. It, yeah, I mean, it's the, the euphoria there's, of it. There's absolutely mm. no question that sport is a drug. I am completely addicted to the events. Um, I often say, if the sporting games only existed and the stuff around it didn't, if you couldn't meet with friends, if you couldn't reflect after the game over a pint, my passion would certainly be dimmed for it. 
But those days, they just, they make you feel younger. And we talk about all those elements, I suppose, of journalism when it comes to trying to reflect that and trying to portray it and put it down on the pages um, of the paper or nowadays it's going up on the web probably before you have time to think. But there is an art to all that and there's a sort of a a bit of a snobbery sometimes about tabloid journalism, tabloid newspapers, but obviously we would feel pretty uh, aggressive about that sort of snobbery and you get it all the time, don't you? Out in the street, people sort of look down their nose sometimes on the tabloid, but the tabloid in particular, while it has had a lot of bad points, especially in the past, in the way it handled people's personal life and all the rest of it, it is a very creative thing. I'm I'm a deeply, deeply insecure person that a lot of people would never guess because I never shut up. I'm gregarious in company. And I need a lot of constant third-party affirmation of the work you do. And I think that a lot of that is a product of working in a tabloid sphere for a long time where there was an automatic assumption that the stuff you're doing was inferior to what mm. to what other people were doing. And from the start in Sunday World, I was absolutely blessed with Colin McGinty, Michael Brophy, John Donlan. People I was working with just gave me a blank page. Mm. And I was allowed write in any style I wished. I was allowed to be flowery. I was allowed to explore the limits of what I wanted to say. So the canvas on which I was writing was essentially tabloid, but it was blank and I could do anything. Um, it was up to me to prove myself. And that was really brave of them. So when people sort of said, ah, but you work for them, it just did my head in. Mm. And it made me more determined. Um, and I suppose when your peers start respecting you, if you pick up an award for something, it slightly relaxes you. But that stuff still endures with me where I need people to know that the stuff I'm doing, you know, maybe if you have a look at it and then judge it if you don't like it, but don't judge it because of where it appears. I could totally and utterly mirror that. And in particular, when you talk about, I suppose, the people who by and large were running this underworld, I always saw Colin McGinty. He was like one of those cool parents that it could have gone either way with you. You know, I would often go into Colin and ask him, can I do this? And Off you go, kid. Was, I could have asked him to go to the moon. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Colin was this magnificent, bohemian, erudite human being, brilliantly read. No matter what you talk about, he knew more than you about it, and yet had this effortless panache and cool about him. And I joined the Sunday World in two, the summer of 2001. And two or three weeks after I joined, 9-11 occurred. Mm. And Colm and Michael Brophy came to me and said, we want you to go over. I had joined ostensibly as a sports writer. And myself, Paul Williams and John Shields went to New York. We were on, I think, the first flight out of Dublin after flights were delayed for five or six days or cancelled rather. And I knew I was intimidated by the notion because you always have this imposter syndrome. Am I good enough to do this? But I was really determined I was going to invest every atom of myself in getting this right. And I walked around Manhattan for two days and there were extraordinary sights. I, I, I'll always recall paper just falling out of windows. This was a week on mm. still. Cars covered in soot. And there was this unbearable scene 
of the posters of the missing up and people begging for information. And it really got to me. Mm. Um, I, I, I found... I found it very intimidating to have to go back and try and reflect this. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, that is such a huge challenge to reflect yeah. such a thing. I, I'd been asked sort of to write, by, by tabloid standards, a very long piece of maybe 3,000 words mm. and a colour piece that gave people the perception as well as you could of what it was like to be on the ground that day. And I just spent hours. I, did, I, I stayed up through the night and... Paul and John came in the next morning to my room and showed them and they were they were taken aback by it and I just got an incredible rush out of that. I mean, it's mm. terrible thing to say you get a rush amongst tragedy, but that sort of that piece was well received and that established credentials of someone who could be trusted to write a big picture mm. uh, article any, on anything. Because, yeah, I, you know, you weren't going to just get pigeonholed into sport, which yeah, is obviously I, like, in more modern times your column totally proves that you're not. Um, but I mean that the, the weight of that on your shoulders, you know, wanting to really reflect that properly in words is a phenomenon. And New York is somewhere that's very close to your heart. You you go a lot, and it was before then. It was before, yeah. yeah. I, I I started going. My my first time in, in New York was the early 90s, and then I would have worked there at the, the World Cup in 94. And after that, I was out there annually, biannually, triannually. Sometimes um, it's just this electrifying city with an unrivaled buzz. You do really feel like you're at the epicenter of creation. I had been up on the uh, the Twin Tower roof six months before, before 9-11, so you felt a personal mm-hmm. impact I was in that windows of the world place. Um, so it all felt very real, even though it was 3,000 miles away. It felt on your doorstep. And I think it was the, it was the JFK moment of our lifetime, really, wasn't sure. it? It was, it was the moment that everybody, everybody relates to. And I, I hugely admired um, New York resilience as well. Amidst the carnage, amidst the devastation, there was this sense of keeping on, keeping on. Mm. And it's what has enabled that city historically to bounce back from Wall Street crashes. It just And floods. And floods. I mean, when you when when you talk about America being the land of opportunity, there's opportunity because people are willing to take risks. People are not bowed when things go wrong. And I've I've huge admira- admiration for New Yorkers and I've a, a deep, deep affection for New York. I mean, I love Dublin as a city and it's very close to my heart and the history of Dublin is is amongst my passions but New York will be right up there too. You're making me want a book. <laughs> I haven't been in a while. PJ Clark's Third Avenue have your first drink always there. Tell me this much the you're going back to sort of you talk about that historic Dublin football team of the 1970s and it sort of paved the way for a new generation to absolutely embrace the ga and the dubs and all the rest of it. I mean, they've had phenomenal success in recent years under Jim Gavin, who we won't go into the details of the story when I met him, will we? Or go on. <laughs> I let you tell it. I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't be fond of libeling anybody at all. But anyway, Anton O'Toole was on that team. Yeah, um, Anton obviously became a really, really close friend of mine. The, the the background, I mean, Dublin, Ireland in general in the early seventies was a bleak monochrome place you had 
emigration and unemployment. You had dereliction right throughout the city. You felt that there was a strong church hold on on the place, which denied people the capacity to express themselves, perhaps. Simultaneously across in England, Match of the Day had come on the television, and Irish people were seeing all these big urban centres in England, Manchester, Liverpool, London, Leeds, had these affiliations to a sporting team and it was how they expressed their identity. It was how um, they found some solace in difficult times. And Dublin was crying out for something similar. And Dublin had been a basket case in terms of Gaelic football for the preceding decade. There was no sign that they were going to even threaten. And then in 1974, this volcano, this sky blue volcano erupted. Kevin Heffernan Came an all-time great Dublin footballer from St. Vincent's, um, a man who was chairman of the Labour Court in his time, a very successful ESB uh, managerial man. He came into the to the ascendancy and he built a team. He made a priority that they were high-achieving, intelligent men and big, powerful athletes. And he revolutionised both the game in Dublin and the game in general, because the, as I say, the city was just crying out for something. And they started in 1974 playing in front of two or 300 people. And by the end of the summer, they were playing in front of 70,000. They were singing English soccer style songs at GA games, which hadn't happened before. And a whole generation of youth who hadn't played the game and who would have probably been supporting a Manchester United or a Leeds at that time, were won over and it revolutionized without without that seed, the giant oak that Jim Gavin and Des Farrell and Pat Gilroy were able to um to pick from could never have happened because there was an explosion of interest in support and that subsequently led to clubs forming in areas where they hadn't been before and to the city rallying around and feeling this was this was a great way to to express who you are. Um and Anton O'Toole went to Sing Street School, as I did. And I wouldn't have known him during his playing days. I was I was well too young. But we became friendly latterly when he was he was in his 50s, I suppose. And he was like the big brother I never had. He was 16, 17 years older than me. And I've never in my life met a man who wore his fame so lightly. He was wise, he was modest, he was gentle, and yet on the on the pitch, when stuff was needed to be done, he was brave, he never hid, he never sought a claim, he always put the team first. He was the sort of person that made you feel you wanted to be a better person. I would go out, I'd meet him for a pint once or twice uh, How did you meet first week. of all? Well, the broader GA circles, I obviously knew who he was. He had heard that I was from... Sing Street, and uh, we were in broad company one night, and just just got talking. That was maybe that he that was maybe twenty years before he uh, before he passed away, and within within a year or two years, he was as close to me as anybody was, and he had he had worked in Guinness and took took early retirement, and horse racing was his other great passion. But I have great debates with him about politics, about literature, um, about journalism. There's just little things he did that sort of spoke of the type of person he was. 
um, when Flo, my wife, would join our company, he'd always stand up and offer her the seat. Mm. I only realized afterwards maybe I should have been the one standing up. <laughs> but here he was, this big man. He never married. He took in took in stray cats, you know, and fed them, and then would be brokenhearted when cats, being cats, followed their feline instincts and ran off. But but yeah, that that has been one of the joys, I suppose, of of the job I do, is meeting, getting to know, having access to more many many of the biggest stars of our generations. I can call people like Paul McGrath, Mick Galway, iconic figures, close friends, and you don't take that for granted. But sometimes you need reminding of it. It's only when you tell a story involving people like that and other people in the company are saying you were with them it just becomes part of what you do is that a unique irish thing or is there a relationship like that that you know of maybe that exists in other countries with between the journalist and the sports star i think i think it's become a far less prevalent um situation everywhere in the world because agents and pr mm-hmm. and these layers between the athlete and the writer have grown but when I when I started, I started with the Star when it opened here in 1988, and I was I was basically GA correspondent immediately. I was soccer color writer. I was rugby correspondent. So you're going to all the biggest events as a yeah. kid, essentially, and the players. A lot of the players were similar age to you, so it was mm-hmm. far easier to establish relationships with them. And are but, you get? Were you given? You, maybe you were given closer access. You'd access all areas, Nicola. Yeah. I mean, if you consider. Five minutes after an All-Ireland final, we could walk into the dressing room and these guys out there walk into a losing dressing room and it's a funereal atmosphere. There's guys there um, like literally like they've lost a family member when they've invested that much and it's gone. Mm. And you can sit beside them and start asking them questions or rather you could. That hasn't been the case for the last 20 years maybe. But it gave you extraordinary insight and it gave you a capacity to provide the reader with something that they couldn't possibly access. access exactly, yeah. And you are unlocking doors for them. And you also recognized that you were in a position of great trust and players were placing trust in you and they could say things that they might not mean so much at the time. So you had to really be careful how you harvested the quotes that were presented to you. And again, when I talk about imposter syndrome, I mean, I was clueless. I was at this elevated position at a very, very young age without the level of perspective you really require. Um, and you think back to some of the stuff you write. I mean, people probably look at some of the stuff I write last week and feel the same, but I look back and I just go, my God, I was some buffoon. Um, I read Jared Gilroy did an interview with uh, with Paul Kimmage in the last year or two, and he was asked about stuff he'd done when he was younger and did he have any doubts about it or worries? And he said, no. And that was completely at odds with my experience where I look back, I can't read anything that I wrote, say, more than 20 years ago. The same as I, I do a lot of TV documentary work now, can't watch it. Yeah. This, I won't listen to it when I come out, just wouldn't dream of doing it. Um, but we just had extraordinary access. And I would say... Of and that my, has stood to you through your career, as you say, it's not available now. It's not. And it, but those but you, Once you have experienced it, yeah. you know what it's like. And it's going to be a replication of those things again and again. And I would say of, of my closest 20 friends in the world, 10 of them 
are athletes who I met in that work athlete environment. And to be able to talk to them at times when there's something big happening, they still have the mindset of someone who was in the, in the arena, who stepped out into that Coliseum with 60 or 70,000 people there. I love listening to Ronan O'Gara. I don't know whether you listen to him much because he talks about his self-doubts. And I think, I think it takes a really brave person mm -hmm. to talk about their fears. Can you imagine being out on a pitch in front of 70,000 people wearing the jersey of your country, the whole nation watching, and you have decided that you're not good enough? And yet, while fighting those doubts, you have to deliver. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. I mean, it, it asks the deepest questions of people. And that's why for all the financial doping in sport, for all the corruption, there's a fundamental honesty of the athlete in the arena that there's no hiding place. And you find out so much about a person's character, both when they succeed and when they fail, oftentimes more often when they fail and how they respond to that failure because it's such a universal failure. Everybody's watching you. Mm. Everybody. And I often think those guys get on buses. They walk into restaurants. They go into shopping centers. They bring their kids to school. Everybody knows who they are all the time. They're always on show. Um, I would find that unbearable. And I have enormous, enormous respect for athletes. Um, and I'm always conscious if you write something about a day, somebody has had a bad day, to recognize these are still the absolute elite who've worked so hard and done so much to arrive at where they are. And I think, okay, you obviously write about transgressions off the field, but there has to be an empathy with their, with their journey and how much they've sacrificed to get there when you're writing about what they do on the field. The, the GA is obviously your favorite sport. Am I wrong? Uh, it's yeah. yeah it, it, do you know, I, at different times of the year, I embrace completely different events. I just mm. fall in love with the Cheltenham Festival when the Open Championship or Augusta is on. I'm a golfer. When the NBA is on, uh, reaches the playoffs, I'm a basketball fan. But the, the thing that stirs the blood most, the thing that really deeps down, digs down and finds my, the center of my being, the sense of identity, yeah, that'd be the GA. And that probably goes back to that day that your father led you by the hand. Unquestionably, mm. unquestionably. And I, when, when, when I start writing about um, GA at, at, at 19 or 20, I really was a novice in terms of understanding how deeply ingrained it is around the country. Mm. And as I started traveling and you go into all these small towns and villages and you see this immaculate pitch, maybe a little stand, um, dressing rooms that people have fundraised endlessly. They are the center of a community that the glue increasingly in a time where the church's influence has diminished in a time when communities are, are particularly in more rural areas are seeing huge depopulation and having to fight and strive to keep together the notion of community. The GA and the volunteers in GA clubs have been at the epicenter of that. And that's where the, the amateur nature of it, to me, is so integral to everything because it's not about reward. It's not about the possibility of getting a contract to go and play in the Premier League and earn endless riches. It's about identity. It's about sense of place. I think probably the most glorious thing about the All-Ireland Championships is not just that we have these unique games in Gaelic football and hurling. Um, for a country our size 
to have a country of five, six million people to have games that generally, well, not generally, but all the time at All-Irelands attract 80, 85,000 people that paralyze the country in terms of the weeks leading into them that have this Corinthian ideal at the heart. Now, I'm not innocent enough to think the games are not changing because players now make an absolute commitment that's that's essentially professional in all but name and there's been a gradual erosion and a gradual change. But I think the uh, that core amateur identity is essential to maintaining the notion of the community being as one when they play. And I really love this notion. You can only play for where you're from. And I'm from Dublin and it would be quite well known that I'd, I'd be passionate about Dublin football, but I would like to think when other teams are successful, I understand what it means to them because I know what it means to me mm. when when Dublin are successful. I always say, I think the one thing you need in writing about sport, well, you need many things, but one thing is you have to be passionate about something. People talk about fans with typewriters and say the sports journalist should always be neutral. I honestly think that's Codswallop. Um, John Feinstein, the great golfing writer says there's no such thing as a neutral journalist sports journalist because everybody when they're watching something has a preference it doesn't mean that you can't reflect the feelings and step away from that when you're writing but you need to know that passion you need to you need to feel the absolute euphoric reaction of victory and you need to know the devastation um of defeat i think to relate to people when Dublin won their All-Ireland on September the 18th, 2011, I would regard that as just a high point. They ha- they had won one All-Ireland in the previous 28 years. And, and was Anton O'Toole at that match? Oh, he was, yeah, yeah. Anton went And to, were you sort of able to, for your, you know, for your journalism around it, sort of lean on him to see how he was feeling about it and that kind of thing. I was out with him the day before in McDade's on Harry Street and Anton, again, such such a modest figure. There were three or four Kerry fans in the Kerry jerseys sitting next to us and they were sort of slagging us. They didn't recognise Anton Mm -hmm. and saying, are you going to the game tomorrow and you're probably only soccer fans anyway. Would you be able to name any of the Dublin players? So Anton stepped out to take a phone call. I go to the bathroom and I told the boys who he was. I said, that's the Blue Panther. That's uh, the only Dublin man as he was at that time to have um, four All-Stars. And they, when he came down, there were about five drinks there in front of him. And <laughs> the boys were absolutely yeah. mortified. Yeah. But but of course, yeah. And as as I was saying earlier, the whole weekend of an All-Ireland, it's not just the game. And being out with him, you really sent, sense the passion. And there were a couple of uh, Sing Street, Temple Oak Sing Street, as the club became, players were involved over the last number of years. And Anton had been a mentor to them um, in the literal sense. He actually managed them and he spoke to them and guided them through a journey. Um, Dennis Bastic, Ono Gare, and he he spoke to me Anton died in, in 2019 and I've the last time I visited him in the hospice uh, in Harrods Cross was just a few days before he died and he was really, really poorly. But there was a glint in his eye. Ono Garrett, the, the Dublin footballer, contemporary Dublin footballer, and James McCarthy, this year's captain, had both visited him in the hospice and Owen had called Anton aside and whispered in his ear, 
that basically, you know, you got my life on a straight path. You saved my life and I love you for it. Mm. And Anton was telling me the story and just a single tear came down. He was very, very unwell. And moments like that reflect to me the beauty and the loyalty of belonging to something and the bonds that are built. Mm, mm, it's a family. It's a family. Mm. It was it was an extraordinary moment. So where would you get to sit for a GAA final when everybody is gagging for tickets? <laughs> yeah. Well, the press box in Crow Park is, is a wonderful facility. It's right on the halfway line of the, the front of the upper deck of the, the Hogan stand. So, and do they feed you prawn sandwiches? And yeah, no, there's a, there, there there are some sandwiches. I haven't I haven't managed the prawns yet. I'd be afraid Roy Keane would come after me if I <laughs> if I went for them. But yeah, it, it it is a wonderful facility. And again, you sometimes need reminding that you do have the best seat in the house. Um, now, sometimes with with the modern requirements for for working online, you don't actually see a lot of the game because you're tapping and. If you're if you're doing stuff, you, you see it all, but you don't mm. you don't follow it in the fashion that you'd perhaps absolutely like to. I love when I'm off on a couple of weeks' holidays, going to games, and you can uh, you can have the few beers and you can sit in the press box and try and shut up until uh, until you get out afterwards. The um, the best way to watch sport is to have our seats, but not have to do the work. Yeah, I yeah, think. of course, yeah, because I mean that's the the pain in the ass. So you know, again, make people jealous. What sort of events have you covered? Where have, where has your job brought you? I suppose over the last 20 or so years in the Sunday world, I mean, yeah, in I, amazing I, places. I think I've been to the guts of a hundred countries in that time. It's been, it's been sort of crazy. You get to cover the big stuff like World Cups and obviously some of that predated and um, my Sunday World Time Euro '88 and Italia '90, which were real coming of age yeah. uh, events for Ireland, when suddenly a nation that had been locked out of all these Mardi Gras was saying got an access all areas pass, and to be to be there at that was was absolutely incredible. Um, Olympic Games, Tour de France, snooker, World Snooker Championships, World Athletics, World World Cup Rugby, um, a couple stand out. The, the World Cup or the Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000 was just an extraordinary experience. They, um, Melbourne had hosted the Olympics in 1956 and there's a big Sydney-Melbourne rivalry. So they were determined to put on a party. And we flew into Sydney on a just stunning, sun-kissed morning. Myself and Vincent Hogan had, had traveled together. And I, were, I was brought to my hotel and I looked out the window there's the Opera House, there's the Harbour Bridge, and this beautiful expanse of water that is Sydney Harbour was there. And I thought, it doesn't get much better than this. And the Sydney people embraced the Olympics in a huge fashion because sometimes a sport event is dependent on how the people react to it. Mm -hmm. And I think it was mainly due to Melbourne and wanting to match what Melbourne had done in 1956. And you just felt that this was something that was defining them as people. And there was a girl called Cathy Freeman, who was an Aborigine, uh, and they had had, Australia was going through a sort of self-reckoning over its past and what it had done. And she, along with a swimmer called Ian Torp, became the face of the Olympics. And I remember being in the Olympic Stadium the night she was running the 400 meters, and she wore 
a hooded top. And I've never known a sense of occasion like it. She had her head down with this hood up. And it was really the first time we were getting to see mobile phones as cameras. And there were just 80,000 of these phones. And I just remember thinking the pressure she's under here. Mm. She's the face of the nation. She's the, the face of her race as well. Mm. And she went and delivered and won. And it wasn't just euphoria. The relief was incredible. A couple of days later, Sonia was running. And I had been in Atlanta in 96 when Sonia was a strong favorite to win. And it all went wrong for her. Her body basically betrayed her. I think probably the stress of the expectation. Um, she got a urinary tract infection and had to drop out, tailed in and dropped out. And it was an awful story just to see someone absolutely devastated because we'd been in Gothenburg the year before when she won the world championship in imperious style. And she came to Atlanta as a certainty. So Sydney, she had moved on in her career. She was at the veteran stage. And would she get an Olympic medal? She had, she had narrowly missed out in 92. She'd had the turmoil in 96. And she ran and finished second. And people say, you know, it's all about gold. But this literally was a silver lining. You could see the weight fall off her shoulders, all the stress and pressures that she'd been carrying. And I was but, only watching it the other night on Reeling Back the Years. Yeah, actually only. Who was the one that won it? Zabo. Oh, God. G Gabriella Zabo. Yeah, yeah. 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 But to, just to see her yeah. afterward, and we did stuff, um, we did press stuff with her, and she was delirious. Yeah. And you realize the weight that these people carry around, the expectation that they carry around. The individuals, again, as you speak about, because sort of around sport, there's been a lot of, for some reason, recently a lot of our worlds would converge, you know, between organized crime involvement in it and also between, um, you know, a lot of sort of suspicions of money laundering happening through it and some of these Gulf states coming in to take ownership of it. That's all the sort of the uh, the bean counters, as we'd call them, and the, the managers, whereas these sports stars remain um, under this. And I mean, they're they're incredible human beings. They're literally you know they're 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 born and they they spend their lives waiting for this one minute Wait, for everything to go right when when you think of what people like Katie Taylor and Kelly Harrington have done for women's sport mm -hmm. in this country um, I'll always remember the 2012 Olympic finals in the boxing in the XL arena and again we talk about the pressure on a person and Katie we had decided she was a gold medal winner weeks beforehand. We were partying. We weren't even considering the notion of defeat. And you could see all of that in her, carrying around all that. Mm. You're not just fighting against a formidable opponent on the other side of the ring. You're, you're fighting against your own fears. And again, when she won, when the result was announced and she won, I'll always remember her wrapping herself in the tricolor and just charging around. She was like somebody not in control of her own body because it was just relief, relief flooding yeah, from her. Yeah, um, You're better off sometimes probably being the underdog. Oh, very much so. Well, it, you will place your own expectations, but you won't have the external expectations yeah. to the same degree. I mean, you learn so much. We were, we were fortunate. 
in the immediate aftermath of the, uh, the, Bar- the Berlin Wall falling to largely with the Irish football team being about 10, 12 Eastern European countries as they embraced enormous cultural change. We went to Latvia, Lithuania, and we went to Moscow, and we went to Romania. But the one that really sticks in my mind is we went to Albania to to play a game. I think it was in the summer in 93. Um, And they were sort of one of the last countries holding on to this notion of the communist ideal. And they were closed off from the rest of the world under Enver Hoxha. And I remember touching down. We'd been told sheep had to be cleared from the runway when we were touching down. And we landed in the land that time forgot. You were, you just were taking a step back in time. There was, I remember driving into Tirana and there was the this farmer on the side pulling, with the oxen pulling yeah. as they plowed the fields. Um, and we were staying in sort of the equivalent of Stevens Green. It was ramshackle. It was, and there were these, I'd always remember two kids that couldn't have been more than seven or eight years of age. Nothing on apart from a pair of shorts um, at the entrance to this hotel. The hotel would have been less than a one star in, in Ireland. And they were just dollar mister, dollar mister. That's the English that they had. Well, even when we went to the game, the stadium was ramshackle, decrepit. Um, they, the toilet facilities were basically an opal hole in the ground about the size of a snooker table. The stench, the rot. And travel broadling the mind, it really gave you an idea of where... We had come as a nation only formed in the 1920s mm. and how fragile the things you take for granted are. And we, were, we, we went to a lot of absolutist nations. We were in Iran in 2001 when Ireland qualified for the 2002 World Cup. And you really... Were you in Iran? Yeah, we were there for <laughs> a couple of, couple of good stories. But one, you really understand how unlikely it is that democracy and the stuff we take for granted will ever prevail and exist because it requires a lot of people to invest their faith in a system where in so much of the world that hasn't happened. You have autocratic regimes, you have corrupt regimes, and you have dysfunction. I mean, when we were when we were going around Moscow and Romania, we were stopped five or six times by by the guards and it was made plain that if we didn't give them $50, we were going to be in trouble. There was just that institutionalized corruption. That was the accepted way of behavior in those countries at, the, at that time. Iran was particularly interesting because I think there were maybe about 35 or 40 journalists made the trip. And there was no drink. It's the first thing that sticks in my so mind. How did that go? So obviously you're away, you get your work done, you have 35 or 40 thirsty hacks. And it was bizarre. There were Did you not find anywhere to do it? It was it was there, we were offered one half chance in <laughs> in the mountains. I think some may have explored, but it just seemed very, very, very iffy. Uh, my strongest memory is we flew out of Iran. I was sitting with um Paul Howard, Russell Carroll, Kelly yeah, fame. Yeah. And um, the Aer Lingus uh, pilot announced, you have left Iranian airspace. And the Aer Lingus hostesses took off the headdresses that they had to wear and the drinks trolley came out. 
No one had seen a drink for six or seven days. Paul Howard started, I think he started singing a Smith song and within a second, the whole pub was, or the whole plane was singing and it was a pub, was a, pub. a 30,000 feet uh, altitude pub. I think we were dancing around the plane and it's amazing what six or seven days <laughs> they drink will do we were, we were in the Sahara for 20 years. <laughs> it was absolutely remarkable, but it, it sort of brings home to you the social side and how important that is in terms of when you're traveling and when you're away to decompress because we were lucky on a lot of those trips. Five or six of those guys would be really, really close friends of mine. People like Vincent Hogan and Philip Quinn and Paul Lennon and Dave Kelly. Um, my, my recently retired Sunday World colleague, John Brennan. And you were a family as well. People looked out for each other. Did two of you guys to Iran? Um, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure if John was in Iran, but I mean, obviously, if, if John was being sent, um, you fear how he might deal with the Ayatollahs. So it probably needed me to act as, as an intermediary. Yeah. <laughs> John would tell them why the Shah should be reinstalled or where the 79 revolution had gone wrong. Actually, we were brought out on a, a taxi trip on, on, in that time in Tehran to, uh, and they, they, they were particularly keen to show us uh, an avenue named after Bobby Sands. Um, I think it was beside the British Embassy, and I think it was intended as oh, yeah. the, the two fingers yeah. to uh, Maggie and the boys back then. Yeah, yeah so We like them now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, we were pals all along, we didn't realise. Do you know, it was, it was really interesting, that game. There were, uh, there were about 80,000 at the game. But in Ireland, you go to the pub or you go to a restaurant and you arrive at the game half an hour maybe beforehand. The journalists tend to be in earlier to get equipment set up and to make sure their phone lines are working, all that sort of stuff. So we arrived at the ground about four hours before the match. It was jammers. And there were 70,000, 80,000 largely young Iranians. And I just thought the social outlets that we take for granted, you know, you go out and socialize. They had nothing else to do. They, they had nothing else to do. And I often wonder... You know, even about so there's nothing wrong with us. We're we're oh, we're, we're like absolutely <laughs> we're absolutely fine, I believe. But it, it really was a window to mm. when you see all these disparate parts of the world and that are culturally so different from what we are used to on a daily basis. It it sort of it makes you reflect on the way you live your own life and both the privileges you have and the things you change. But without without journalism, you would. You'd, you'd, you'd go to your resort holidays or you'd go do a bit but of traveling. It's, it's but amazing to go to these places that you wouldn't, um, when you're talking about drink there, I was would have been in Syria mm. in around 2000, I think. I think it was around 2000. And I remember crossing the border and taking that road to Damascus, which was literally like being back in school. And, you know, when you were doing the Bible and you'd be sort of visualizing the camels and all, that's what it was like. But we managed to get drink, Roy. Well, that was your road, Damascene conversion. You yeah. were on your road to we Damascus got, and you started drinking. Because it was Paddy's day, Paddy's night. We, we had drink in the one place in the whole of Damascus where they served it. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, well, let's see. You, you're you're leading me one nil in that particular game. It was, <laughs> it was it was funny because while we were there, it was only a month after or two months after nine eleven, and there was another plane crash. A plane taking off from JFK crashed into Queens, and everyone was killed. We heard this in Iran, mm. and we said, "Oh no, this is another attack. Things could get very hairy here." It it transpired that um, it was it was a mechanical failure for the plane, but. Um, 
everyone was on tenterhooks in that period immediately after. It would have been it would have been interesting had it been another attack to be in that part of the I world mean, at that time. Yeah, you'd been in a that big, part. Thirty-five of you without a drink. Uh, yeah, well, whatever about whatever about the one-star accommodation, yeah. the absence of the drink could have been a major. There might have been. We might have had to repair to Bobby Sands Avenue and see epic. what would happen. Um, you know, it's an it's been an education, I suppose, in everything in world politics, in the cultural differences, in what we have, and I suppose how rich we are here because we do forget that. I I think that's a huge factor and. You can say this, and it sounds like you're belittling people's very, very authentic and real difficulties. Um, I came from a very working class background. I understand the issues that people face on the journey through life. But I do think we sometimes don't realize how, I don't want to use the wrong words, but how Ireland does an awful lot of stuff very well. Mm. It really does. Um, which is not to say it doesn't do an awful lot of stuff very badly. If you're a person trying to get a house now and you're living at home at 30 and you can't start a family as a consequence, or if you're a person driving, getting up at five in the morning to drive to work because accommodation is so scarce, those things are are very real and they've been well articulated, the rage that people feel as a consequence. But we still, in terms of quality of life in many, many other ways, have have an awful lot going for us. I know there has been serious issues about crime in Dublin streets in recent times, and um, there's no doubt there should be a far greater police presence on the street. I think, personally, that's one of the great scandals of our time, that police have been asked to do desk work and to get qualifications rather than being on the beat and on the street and being being a visible presence. But I spend a huge amount of my time in, in Dublin city centre and walking around the streets. And I, I mean, there's still a beauty to it. There's a sociability to it. There's a cultural excellence to it. I, I spoke to a lot of the Notre Dame alumni who were over here for the American football. They're, a lot of them, very, very successful and wealthy and well-traveled people. Mm. They were blown away by Dublin, almost to a man, the people I spoke to to a man and woman. They just thought there was a conviviality. They thought there was a beauty to the city. They loved that you could walk around rather than freeways and highways coming through your city. Um, and perhaps it's a, it's a reflection of my own insecurity that you like that affirmation from other people. Oh, uh, yeah, because um, it's interesting to hear that. It, it is. And, you know, I saw some people giving out about, oh, we're rolling out the red carpet for the Americans. And I just thought, get over yourself. These people are coming here as visitors. They're spending an absolute fortune. They're bringing color and carnival mm. to the city. I walked through the city on the Saturday when the Dame Street closed off. And it was absolutely brilliant. Pop-up bars and merchandising stores and the sense of color. To be honest, it's something we should be doing here for all Ireland final weekends. We should be having these tailgate parties and making a festival out of something that's precious to Ireland. The great Michal Amorhartig campaigned for years for the Monday after All-Ireland Finals to be bank holidays so that the weekend really stretches out and people have a chance to savour and enjoy it. And when you see the way the Americans do sport and the show they put on around the events, I think perhaps we have something to learn from that. Most definitely. Your column, you you know you've written about in recent times stress the housing crisis you've spoken about aging 
you've written about your mother um, and her death and how it has affected you. And you've also written about characters of Ireland in the same way you sort of, I think, write about your sporting heroes, the likes of Christy Dignam and Sinead O'Connor and uh, people who have been taken over the last few years. You seem to see magic everywhere. You know, while you, you're looking at me now like of 10 heads, but no, you do. No, I'm not. I'm not. You seem to see magic in places that you sort of, uh, there's, when, when you look, when I look, then I see it. You can look at the world through different eyes. You can go out of your way to feel bad about stuff or you can search for the beauty. And when you start searching, you realize there's diamonds and there's beauty everywhere. When I was asked to start to do the column, I recognized that was probably the biggest privilege that I've been afforded in journalism, a chance essentially to write about anything you want. Mm. It also was a huge responsibility. And I thought, you know, you can be angry about things. And at the start during COVID, I was sounding off about restrictions and I was very frustrated. And you read those columns back and they don't age well. I think anger and fury doesn't wa- doesn't age that well. It's interesting. I think mm. empathy, I think kindness. As you say, I, I've wrote a number of times about my mother who was an extraordinary woman, just this font of love who sacrificed to give her own kids a chance that they might have opportunities that she wouldn't. And oftentimes when I'm writing, I'm thinking of her and the way she approached things. She had a hard life and yet her positivity, her love of life, whether it was watching sporting events, whether it was reading, whether it was her passion for family and people, she would be the person singing at every party. And you see people who bring joy into life My father-in-law died about two years ago and I wrote a piece about his funeral Mm. and a country funeral and the power of those um, events to bring people together. And in debt, here was a community showing its support. And to me, that's the greatest thing in the world. And there were a number of people going around not knowing what to say or how you react, not knowing that by being there, you're saying plenty. By being there without opening your mouth, you're embracing people, you're offering them a life raft at a time when they're adrift. I think we saw it again last week, the funerals in Clonmel. They were absolutely heartrending. And yet there was an extraordinary solidarity. There was a sense of people coming together. You're reminded of the power of community and how no person is an island in those times that I think... Funerals are very are one of the things Ireland does really, really well. We come together, we celebrate, we talk, and we bring the person back to the life for those who love them. You say a proper cathartic farewell. Um, my mother's funeral was one of the hardest and one of the most beautiful days of my life. When I see someone like Christy Dignam, you mentioned there. The courage with he, which, which he dealt with his sickness, I found that inspiring. I find the notion of a working class poet, a guy who overcame addictions and difficulties in his life. And I, I went to an Aslan concert seven, eight years ago, maybe, and his communion with his audience and how, like I was saying about a great sporting event, how he was carrying people beyond their troubles. 
he was sort of the parachute easing their fall. And I found that remarkable. Aging, you mentioned. I have a terror of death. I, I think it's more a terror of not being alive mm. rather than dying because I've been blessed in my journey and I love life. Um, if you send me to one of the great city center pubs on a, a Monday afternoon to the Palace Bar or to Kyo's or to Briotis, um, or to Neary's with a great book, sit over a couple of pints, that to me, I want to be able to do that forever. And the notion that that will stop, um, I just I, I go to pubs a lot on my own and people say, is that not a bit strange going on your own? But I've never felt alone in a pub because to me, the great Victorian pubs at the heart of Dublin, I mentioned a few there, and then you have the Long Hall, you have Mulligans, you have the Swan, you have the Dame Tavern, the Stag's Head. These are the silent witnesses to Dublin's story. They are, to me, they're the museums I would send any visitors to because the story of Dublin is written in those pubs. And I love sitting there on my own, getting lost in book. Then I'll close the book for a while and I'll just imagine the people who have passed there. And you're sitting there with the old ghosts and some people will find that a bit strange. But that to me is the idea of a perfect, perfect day. And I do find as you get a little bit older, you maybe get a bit wiser. You start to understand the things that matter more. And love, I mention love a lot, love and kindness and friendship. They're the gold standard for me at 54, 55 next week. They're the things that matter to me now. Um, and if you can have a day where you extract the maximum pleasure from that day without hurting anybody, and perhaps getting involved in a conversation with someone, whether it's meeting someone on a bus and listening to them. I see a lot of, I, I wrote a piece about a guy I see up beside me, he gets on a bus every day. And he was talking to a person in front of me. He, he goes to a particular cafe and has a cup of coffee and a cake. And I suspect that's his only social interaction in that day. Mm. Um, my mother, the, the bus pass was her lifeline to the world after dad predeceased predeceased her by 10 years. And she would tell me about the conversations she had on the bus every day. And I don't think people realize until they're in the situation that that is the antidote for loneliness. And loneliness must be the most crucifying, most horrible thing when you're getting up just to face a solitary day, when you crave social interaction the vitamin of kindness and love to find its way into your system. So I love if I'm in a pub, on a bus, I love if I see someone on their own and it looks like they're itching for a conversation. I would never step away from that because you can, uh, you can contribute hugely to their sense of self-worth and being just by, just by those few words. And I suspect you have collected a lot of characters in your life from those very scenarios, including one or two who I have met with you. Well, um, you can't go into a pub with you without, <laughs> you know, somebody in the corner. I, I was going through contacts in my phone um, not so long ago, and I realized I had over 200 numbers of either publicans, barmen, or people I solely knew through going into pubs. Um, Christmas before last, 
I was able to write a column and it was one of my great joys and pleasures about one of Dublin's truly colourful characters, Peter Roach, the doc, as he is, he's widely known. He's this dapper 70-something man who is a daily communicant in both the Palace Bar and Mulligans. You did? Um, Great guy. He, the sun shines every day of that man's life. Mm. You cannot spend five minutes in his company and not come away feeling refreshed, reinvigorated, and determined to be positive about life. He sees the good in everybody. He, every two weeks he rings me, are you around today? And I meet him. There's a present for herself. Um, his own wife passed um, about eight years ago, I think. I hope I'm right in the, the timing of that. And he talks about how he goes into the pubs because in those pubs are his family now. And we talk about Dublin characters of yore and the, the Bang Bangs and the, the, the Brendan Beans being around the place. And people say there's no characters now, but you'll find them everywhere. And in someone like, in someone like Peter Roach, I would, I, I find a template about how as I get older, I should live my life. I wouldn't be able to get close to the man um, in terms of his constant good humor. But people like that are heroes to me as much as the superstars that we celebrate on a daily basis. Well, you sound as if you hit the jackpot when you chose your career because everything you enjoy in life is in it. Yeah, I, I remember, again, Vincent Hogan saying to me about 10 years ago, you know, if you were to die today, wouldn't you say, life has been bloody good to me, and I don't want to die today, and I don't want to die tomorrow, but the journey has been, it's been really, really rewarding, and I can be, I can be cranky, and downbeat many days, but I always try and finish a day by saying, you know something, how many people would love to walk that path? Mm. And on that note, Roy Curtis, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.